How's everybody doing? All right. It's so good to be together. Um, before we dive into the text and dive into today's sermon, um, if you were here last week, um, you heard, or if you listened to the sermon, you heard that I had shared that I was going to make a statement um, uh, regarding just the current climate in our country uh, around the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And as I shared last week, I took some time to process this, um, to pray. I didn't want to share in an unhelpful way or share from my perspectives alone. I don't, uh, I don't speak on behalf of the church, so to speak. I have my own opinions on many things that I don't enforce or try to make that the standard of the church. We're a community. We're all under the lordship of Jesus. And so, um, and the situation I think merited a statement. But I realized this week, had someone lovingly send me an email, and I realized even just the term statement could create some stress. Because um, in some churches, that would mean that after this statement, some people are in and some people are out. Um, but that's not where we're coming from at all. I want to talk just for a moment about the tension of conviction and compassion. Conviction and compassion. And that's what I hope our church can hold together. Uh, we're a church that does believe in the sanctity of life, and that's very core to us. And that belief is manifested not just on the issue of, uh, of, of abortion and a child in a womb. We manifest our belief in the sanctity of life and the ways that we advocate for people that are in the margins, people that need a voice, people that are oppressed and are sidelined, um, people that are incarcerated, people that, um, for whom life, so to speak, people no longer care, the poor, the hungry. Um, and so we're not just a pro-birth church. We are a pro-life church. We are pro-life because we believe that every life has dignity and value and that the image of God is born on every life. But we recognize that this is not some cut and dry issue and that often churches and that have the stance of being pro-life often in an unhelpful way, in a very cruel way sometimes, gloss over a woman's role in all of this conversation and how the forces that are at work in a woman's life that lead her to make that decision are often crudely handled and not respected and also a lack of sensitivity around the fact that um, we're talking about legislation that imposes limits on a woman's body. And, and to say that glibly or to gloss over that is not a helpful thing. And, and, and here's what I, I want to say is that in America, unfortunately, we pit the vulnerable child in the womb against vulnerable women. And that is the tension. But as a church, we want to resist that divide. As a church, we want to hold that tension, and we want to make room and space for both. If you're a woman and you have had an abortion, or you know someone who has, or you, are, you lean toward that decision, we want you to know, want you to hear directly from me that you will be loved, that you will not be judged, that you will be fully welcomed, and that we're so grateful you're part of our community, and we hope that 
you will always feel that way, and we will contend to make sure that that's the case. If you are pro-life and you're part of this church, we want you to know that we will push to make sure that you mean pro-life in the fullest sense of the word, that you, we will not be a church that's just pro-birth, and we will not be a church that will just hang on a political win as if that is the fullness of what it means for us to follow Jesus in this area. That we want to be a church that holds conviction and compassion together. As we are deeply committed to the sanctity of life and as we're deeply committed to the image of God and women and respecting both. And so my prayer is that we would learn to love one another. If we could learn to love one another, despite our differences, despite our differing opinions, and learn to go to God's word humbly and to treat each other with respect, that would be an amazing sign to our divided world. And so my prayer is I hope that you join in that call for us to not just choose being right or wrong on an issue, but for us to choose to be a community that's marked by love and empathy and compassion. And so your prayers are much appreciated as this is by far not an easy task, but we are up for it. And so thank you for letting me share um, some thoughts. And, and most of all, I invite you to pray for us. Let me pray for us, actually, and then we're going to go into the scripture. God, we recognize your lordship, that you are king. And Lord, it's not our perspectives that we're holding as this, the, the highest law. It's your word, it's your thoughts, it's your will. And we recognize that this can be challenging, but we want your spirit's power and grace to help us. So Lord, may we be a community marked by your presence, your love, your grace. And would you help us to live under your lordship. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. As Pastor Denise shared, we are in the middle of a sermon series titled Life As It Should Be, and what the sermon series has been looking at, a very key passage in the New Testament known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a section of scripture where, in essence, Jesus downloads his mind, his thoughts, his heart on so many subjects. I've encouraged you over these weeks to go and just spend time. It's three chapters, chapter five, six, and seven, and you will walk away after spending time in those three chapters and which, with a fullness, a richness of a worldview of how to live and how to see the world as Jesus is calling us to see it. And our contention is that often the lives that we live are not in symmetry with the life that God wants us to live. And that this is an invitation for us to live life as it should be as we wrestle with Jesus' thoughts and Jesus' mind. And we're continuing with where we left off, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 30. I've encouraged you, and please, this is not like a legalism or anything, if you do, um, so don't feel any shame or, or regret. But I've encouraged you during this series just to tickle my old soul um, and bring a physical Bible. It's just a cool thing just to see that. Y'all own some, and, um, and that the hope that you crack it open during the week. And so um, Matthew chapter 5, 
verse 21 to 30. I want you to hold your seats because Jesus has some very strong things to say to us. Here we go. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard, verse 27, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to worship you, to bow our hearts before your word. Lord, I'm so grateful for the gift that it is for us to turn to you and say, speak to us. We want to hear your heart, understand your mind. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus. Illuminate the word of God to each of us. Help us to hear the word of the Lord. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, thus far in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has spoken to us about our character, when we looked at the section of the Beatitudes, he spoke to us about our influence when he calls us to be salt and light in this world. But today, he's going to continue to speak to us about the place of the law. We looked at the place of the law last week where we studied the words of Jesus where he says, not one iota, not one jot of the law will be, will be removed until it's all fulfilled, that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And I think it's important as we continue to go on to just make this statement, because on the surface, when we read this, it can look as if Jesus is like contradicting Moses, because he says, you've heard that it was said, and then he quotes one of the Ten Commandments or one of the Mosaic Law. But it's, it's important to note that he's not contradicting Moses, he's confronting the Pharisees in this situation. So whenever he explains or more fully articulates the intention, the full scope of the law, what he's trying to do is correct the false doctrine, the false teaching of the Pharisees, because this is how the Pharisees heard the law. They heard the law, do not commit murder. They thought, okay, we'll do. So as long as I don't kill a person, then it's okay if I hate them. It's okay if I talk about them. It's okay if I curse them out. 
It's okay if I have a lifelong grudge. The way they heard the law and the way they interpreted it fell way short. See, the intention of it is to not just tell us to abstain from murdering someone. The law has a positive meaning, a positive connotation, a positive direction. And it's the same with adultery. And so for the Pharisees, they heard, as long as I don't engage in the physical act of adultery, then it's okay if I have an emotional affair, I I entertain sexual fantasies, I view women as objects. See, this was the problem that Jesus was trying to confront. And so that's why when he says, you have heard that it was said, and then he gives the fuller meaning. What he was trying to address is the fact that the way the Pharisees taught people to observe the law, they taught them to observe it in a way that was very outward, yet did not connect to a need for inner transformation. And so while they practice and obey the law outwardly, inwardly, they allowed sin to fester in all these really awful ways. But it's not just them to, to give them a break. Sometimes Pharisees, um, we just are, are negative toward them. And just actually, if you study uh, biblical history, there were many good Pharisees. Uh, you can't lump everybody into the same clay. However, they were all following a similar tune that still exists today, and that is that religion can only master the outward. Religion will only take you as far as you mastering external behavior. Yet Jesus, in these verses, addresses the fact that these Pharisees were teaching people to obey external behavior, yet he goes deeper than just action. He talks about words. He talks about motives. See, so though the Pharisees focus on this outward, Jesus comes in deeper to fully explain the law, and he exposes where these religious traditions fell short. And I have to be honest with you, This sermon has probably been one of the greatest sources of conviction in my soul the last couple weeks that I've been sitting with this text because I realized that though outwardly there's areas that externally people say, Christian's clearly a Christian. (laughs) Outwardly he's obeying, yet inwardly, oh When I let the searing, piercing eyes of Jesus look at my heart and I began to see what he saw, I realized, ooh, we are in trouble. Because our actions could be very clean, but our words, our motives can be very broken. And I'm probably talking to a room of people who your actions are more than likely very clean. But maybe there's some folks that your actions don't feel that clean. And so you're feeling convicted on both ends of the spectrum. And yet Jesus is speaking to all of us very personally. Remember the verses before these, what we looked at last week, Jesus said something that's still so heavy. He says that unless our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, that that idea of our righteousness exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's important to parse that out because 
Jesus isn't saying that outward obedience isn't important. Clearly, outward obedience is important. But he's telling us in these verses to cut off anything that leads us to sin, to remove it, to be violent toward it, to not allow it to be comfortably at place in our lives, because he's saying that our righteousness needs to be more than outward obedience. And I want to warn you, as we go deeper into the words of Jesus this morning, it's going to feel like we are falling into a very deep pit, and you fall into a pit that's hundreds of feet deep, and you only have a 10-foot ladder. It's going to feel a little hopeless until it feels good again. So I just warned you. All right. How does sin grow in our souls? You ever ask that question? Before someone blows up, before someone you know, has an episode of road rage, before someone sends that scathing email, before you say words that you regret, before you cross boundaries that God has clearly said to not cross, how is sin growing in our hearts? Because what Jesus helps us to see, what the Pharisees were refusing to see, it's not just outward. It's not just the physical act, the moment where it becomes visible to others, to the naked eye. Actually, it's happening deep down inside. And there's, a, there's, there's an accountability that Jesus is trying to bring to us where before sin manifests in our lives, there's an accountability that he's bringing to us about how, what are we doing How are we acknowledging as it's brewing inside of us? You ever brewed a pot of coffee in the morning? And if you've ever timed it, it doesn't take that long. But when you need it, it feels like forever. It's like, why can't water boil faster? But it's brewing, it's fermenting, it's taking its time. Or if you've studied how People make wine or stronger drinks. It ferments. Or how many people love kimchi in the room? It ferments. So many things that we love are is a process of fermentation. It takes time. And so what Jesus is drawing our attention is that before sin is outwardly manifested, it's fermenting inside. It's brewing. And you may say, I don't have any responsibility for that. I'm only responsible for what shows up, what comes out. But that would be incorrect. The reality is that you and I can't stop our minds from having an evil thought. Have you ever had an evil thought? I'm just waiting for everybody. (laughs) Admit that you're human. If you're sitting next to someone, you you didn't hear them say yes, pray for them, you know? (laughs) Be concerned. They're holding a lot of stuff in. You can't stop an evil thought. It's like literally the equivalent of walking down the street and a bird pooping on your head. What did you have to do with that? Nothing. You were minding your business. Just walking down and all of a sudden, poop, just hit you. But could you stop a bird from building a nest on your head? Do you know how many trips a bird would have to take 
to build a nest. You ever seen a bird build a nest? It is a meticulous process. And it is a slow process of multiple trips. And so Jesus is saying, there's some bird nest stuff happening in your soul that you have to take account of. There's words that we say that we say them freely, glibly, but do we actually realize what we're saying? There's people we talk about. There's thoughts that we have about people, about people groups, about uh, people from different parts of the country, about people that vote differently than you, or, or there's thoughts, there's intentions, there's words. And Jesus is bringing relevance to all of that because where do these actions come from? They don't just pop out of nowhere. They're rooted in our thoughts. They grow in our hearts. They ferment. And so sin doesn't just take place when it acts out, when it's shown. Sin starts in our hearts, in the inward parts. What's fermenting right now? I remember I had a friend, never forget, we were hanging out, a bunch of us. I mean, I was, gosh, this was early 20s. I'm an old man. Um, and I thought everything was cool. We were hanging out. We just finished, like, having a Bible study, prayed. We, got some, we finished some food. Might have been like a Thursday night, nothing crazy in Brooklyn. And this friend just got up, said, all right, I'm going to get going now. I'm like, all right, cool. And then a couple of days later, find out that he went on a bender and he just basically drank his whole paycheck away. And the shame he felt. And, and we were really broken for him. But also I was deeply puzzled. I was like, he was there, like right there. We were just together. What happened? But things ferment. Realizing that while he was sitting there with us, things were fermenting. Things were brewing. Things were stirring. One way to think of what Jesus is trying to get at is the sin beneath the sin. The sin beneath the sin. I know you cursed that person out. I know you cut them off when you were driving. I know you think those things and you say those things, that can be identified. I know you feel certain ways about your spouse, about your kids, about your in-laws. I know no one has ever had any difficult thoughts about their in-laws, of course not. Um, I know your boss brings up certain feelings in your muscles and in your spine um, it, it, when, you're, when they come in the room. I, I, I know all of that, I get that. Jesus, it's helping us to see underneath that. Before it becomes visibly noticed, there's something brewing underneath that. That just an outward observance of the law would miss what's happening inside of us. See, biblically, when it says to not murder, it specifically means an unjust taking of someone's life. 
That's what we're biblically commanded to not do, an unjust taking of someone's life. This is pretty low, this bar. Like, could you imagine? That's a pretty low bar. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but hopefully none of you guys are brewing right now, and you're going to walk out of here and take someone's life, God forbid. Most of us will spend our whole life, and this will never be a true issue for us. Most of us will never be like, hey, what are you struggling with this week? I'm just, you know, thinking about murdering people. You know, like that's, most of us, that's not our struggle. What can I be praying for you? Oh, well. But what Jesus helps us to see is that there's something deeper. He's the fulfiller of the law. He's not the abolisher. And he begins to explain, and this is his explanation, and this is a heavy explanation, a very convicting one. He says, if you're angry or hateful towards someone, you're liable to the same repercussions as if you were to murder them in God's eyes. Did you hear that? Most of us will never... God forbid, thank God, never be close to even crossing the line of murder. Yet Jesus is saying, if you're hateful towards someone, you're just as liable. Hateful. I don't even have to have specific conversations with any of you to know that I would say the majority of us have experienced hate towards someone. Whether justly or unjustly, we've experienced that feeling. And Jesus is saying, if that's you, and you think you're good because you haven't murdered, if you haven't crossed that ultimate line, Jesus is saying, same repercussions from his perspective. See, hate is in the heart. Murder is the outward outcome of hate. But then Jesus doesn't just stop there. He adds two other things. He says, if you hold someone in contempt and if you speak derogatory comments. You know what it means to hold someone in contempt? It literally means that you see no redemptive value in them. You've like beyond given up in their capacity to rise to the occasion. You view them with no hope. You view them so negatively that you lack the capacity to treat them with empathy and compassion. Have you ever shunned someone? Have you ever spoke ill about someone? Have you ever spoke down to someone? Have you ever been mean towards someone? Have you ever bullied them? Jesus says you're liable. And it's tricky, because I don't know about you, but I've met some people that are very mean, but they, they're mean in like a kind of a kind way. You know, it's just like, and I was really mean, but they just said it really nicely and softly. It's very disorienting. It's just like, you kind of just cut me open, but you didn't scream at me. 
comes in all shapes and sizes. He says, if this is happening, this, this is insane that Jesus says this. He says, if this is happening in your heart and you are at the altar praying to God, worshiping him, says, leave your gift at the altar and go and run and reconcile. Do you fathom what Jesus is saying? Jesus came to this earth to reconcile us that we might be in a living, dynamic relationship with him. And he's saying, if you find these things fermenting and festering in your heart, I want you to take them this seriously. They are serious enough that I would say, stop praying and go and deal with it. I can't think of any other verse of scripture that actually speaks of that. There's actually one other Old Testament scripture where God says, I abhor your festivals, your worship, your songs, your sacrifices, because you have no heart toward justice for the poor and the marginalized. So in two places in scripture, God strongly tells us that if something is brewing in your heart, stop praying and deal with it. This is how serious God says. So right now, you may be wanting to leave today and go about your business and, and go about your week and plan your month and, oh, I got to make sure this happens before the summer ends and this is going to be my summer and you got plans and you got things that you want to get done and Jesus is saying there's probably nothing more important that should be on the top of your list than you dealing with anything fermenting in your heart towards someone. So important that if you stop praying to deal with it, you would have my approval. But God, show me your plan. I just did. God, what do you want from my life? I just told you. God, show me the next five years. What's the vision? What's the purpose? I just showed you what you should do the next five minutes. There's stuff that could brew in our hearts, and sometimes we may not even be aware of it. I remember a pivotal moment. I was at the altar, kind of the front portion of a church. It was not a typical church building, so you say, what is it, the altar? That sounds like a crazy place. Um, it was a traditional kind of church building. I was in the front, I was praying, and I was praying for uh, a family member, someone that I really loved. They were going through a really tough situation, and what was about to happen was that the child in this family dynamic was going to grow up without a father. That became clear. The, the mom and dad trying to work things out got really bad, really hostile. And this child I know is going to grow up without a dad. And I remember being at the altar and praying for them. And I said, God, I know they're going to be okay. I grew up without a dad, and I'm okay. And I heard at that moment the Holy Spirit say, actually, you're not. And I'll never forget, it was a wooden floor. I could hear my tears hit the wood as my heart began to heal and ushered me toward a journey that continues to this day. I had no idea. I thought I was good. 
similar to some of us. Maybe right now you feel like you're good, but sit with the Lord. Ask him to examine your heart, to search you. Say, God, is there anything fermenting inside of my heart? Hate. Are there words that I say that I don't even hear anymore? Are there attitudes that I have that don't even register as things that you would be concerned with? But Jesus doesn't just stop there. If right now you're feeling some conviction, it's about to get worse because Jesus says the following. You have heard, verse 27, that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We just talked about anger. Let's talk about lust. See, the Pharisees viewed the commandment of not committing adultery as just avoiding the physical act of an extramarital sexual encounter. Now, but here's what's interesting, and you see another instance of how they twist the scriptures, because if they just read the full Ten Commandments, there's a commandment that comes later after thou shalt not murder, says you're not supposed to covet after someone's wife, you're not supposed to have illicit desires after someone else's spouse. But even then, as glaringly uh, clear as that is, they still were trying to manipulate and, and twist the words so that they could just have an outward appearance of obedience. And yet Jesus is honing in on their hearts and saying, you outwardly obey this, yet inwardly you're full of lust. And he's saying, it's as if you've already committed adultery in your heart. And he begins to explain, it's, it's how you look at a woman, the desire you hold toward her. And so, in other words, what Jesus is saying is that lust itself breaks the commandment of not committing adultery. To have selfish desires toward another the desire to use someone for your own gain, for your specific purposes, even if it's damaging to them, Jesus is speaking to this. Now notice, this is only addressing men. If you look at it, it's, it's talking about men. Men lusting, wives. And so the question is why if Jesus is just addressing men, then clearly women are not accountable for this, right? You know, women, women have no capacity for lust in their hearts because y'all are just angels. Y'all are amazing. Um, you know, like sin invades our hearts in ways that it never invades yours. Clearly, that's not what is being said here. It's addressing the heart. But it is interesting that God would speak to men directly about this. Because if we're honest, men drive in this world so much sexual brokenness is driven by the lust of men and their willingness to do anything to fulfill it, no matter the carnage that is experienced by others. And so in some ways, Jesus is going, 
to the, to the, to the, the beginning of the river. He's going upstream in addressing where this all flows from, the brokenness that we see in this area, though obviously everyone is accountable. In some ways, he's addressing the driver of the car, but clearly as a passenger, you could just be as liable. And the fact is that this is not a hat that only men wear. Women could be just as lustful, could be just as selfish in their desires and, and using of others. This is something that all of our hearts are being spoken to. But I do ask the question, what would happen to our world if men became sexually whole? Because the fact is, there are very, very few men that I've ever talked to in my whole Christian life that have not struggled with pornography, that are not actively struggling, even like committed Christian men. There's a deep, deep problem in our hearts. And thanks be to God that Jesus isn't just concerned with external adherence to the law. He wants to heal what's broken inside of us. So whether it's anger, hate, or lust, Jesus is addressing these things because he wants to heal us. But look at how serious Jesus considers these things. How serious is unchecked anger and lust, according to Jesus? Jesus says it's better to go into heaven with no eye or no hand. Now, he constantly uses hyperbole to make a point. So please don't chop off your hand. Don't chop off your eye because you think that that's what you have to do to sin. Because guess what? After you were to remove a physical appendage from your body, you'd still have those same desires. But he's trying to communicate something. He's trying to say, you need to take this seriously. You need to be violent against it. You can't be passive. You can't let this settle in your heart. You can't let hate just settle. Unchecked anger just settle. You can't let lust just settle. Do whatever it takes. In essence, Jesus is saying, stay clear of it. Because the reality is unchecked anger and unchecked lust will ruin our lives before we ever commit murder or adultery. It'll ruin our lives way before those physical acts would ever show up in our lives. And so Jesus is calling us to respond with seriousness to these heart issues. But here's where we get hopeful again. Because if you're like me, even now, there's conviction. You're aware of, man, I really need Jesus. My heart's so broken, it's prone to wander, as that famous hymn says. And what do we do? If you and I look within ourselves and try to respond to Jesus' commands in our own strength, we will be heading toward a lifetime of despair because you can't do this on your own. And here's the good news. You and I are not called to abstain from sin in order for God to love us but because he loves us, we're empowered to abstain from sin. And so 
please don't walk out of here thinking you have to do X for God to love you. No, actually, it's the opposite. Because God loves you, even though you may have stuff brewing in your heart, that's the source of empowerment to break free. That's the pathway of healing and deliverance, recognizing that the God of the universe loves you unconditionally, unequivocally, unrelentingly, and it's that love that frees you in order to obey. It's that love that changes your heart and shifts our souls away from these destructive things. And so let conviction not become condemnation, but let it usher you into the arms of Jesus and say, Jesus, this stuff is fermenting in my heart and in your love alone is my hope, is my freedom, is my deliverance. Because guess what happens over time? The more settled in you become into the embrace of Jesus, even when you're wrestling, even when you're straying, even when you're messing up, over time, eventually, the things that grip your heart begin to loosen. And then soon, the appetites that once drove you no longer can find you. Because you get so lost in God's love that the things that used to call you into chains can't call your name anymore. Your address has changed. It can't find you. You no longer respond because a deep inner righteousness has happened. That's what his love does. It empowers us to resist the fermentation of anger and hate and lust. This is what Jesus invites us to. As the worship team comes forward, could I invite us to stand? Over these next few moments, oh, I want us to do some honest wrestling with God. I hope you sense his loving invitation for you to come into his presence, regardless of what's fermenting in your heart, and that you would run into his arms. As we worship and seek him over these next few moments, if I could invite us, if you feel comfortable, can I invite you to raise your hands in the presence of God? This is a physical posture, a physical response to what's happening in your heart, a response of surrender, of worship, of laying down, of receiving. And as we respond in these next few moments in worship, the prayer team is in the back there, to my right, to your left. And I want to encourage you, slip out of your seat over these next few moments and go and receive prayer for the words that were shared earlier or anything that's stirring in your heart, any conviction, anything that the Spirit is doing, respond. And even if you think you don't need prayer, go and get prayer. Go and allow the power of the Spirit through someone else to minister to you, to encounter God in that space. Let's turn to Him. Let's worship. Let's receive prayer in these next few moments. Nothing left.